Well, if you're an evening service regular, you know we finished the Gospel of Mark last Sunday, and it worked out quite well. We won't have an evening service next week, uh, but it worked out quite well to have Al and Julie Meyer with us uh, tonight to share about what they're doing. And for those who like to know about the big picture, or maybe if you're not an evening service regular but just wondering, uh, we're going to be looking at topics from the book of Proverbs after Easter, so things like money, family, parenting, uh, mostly things I'm not great at, and so could personally benefit from studying the wisdom of Proverbs. So that's kind of what we'll be doing, and you know Sunday evening it's interactive, so that'll be good. Uh, that's kind of what we're looking forward to the rest of the spring. But uh, without further ado, Al, do you want to come up? Okay, okay. Well, thank you very much for yeah, the privilege to be able to just tell you a little bit about ourselves and about Belgium this evening. Um, I want to recap, go back quite a few years. Uh, for some of you, of course it's old news, but for some of you that I, I actually don't know yet, um, it might be new. When I was in high school, I was a bit of a rebel, not a good student, and not a good person. And uh, I, we, did, we did go to, uh, my brothers and I, we did go to Sunday school and catechism and youth group. But on, uh, on the weekends, I was also not following the Lord in, in any way, shape, or form. And uh, there came at Easter in 1969, I was a senior in high school, uh, the Young Calvinist Conference in Warren Beach. And I understand from others this, this went on for many years. But uh, I went for the first time uh, in my life to something like this. And uh, I went with a case of beer in the trunk just in case the, I wanted to escape, I guess, from the place. And uh, on the first evening already, the Lord was heavy upon my heart, or he gave me a very, very heavy heart. And so that, uh, for some reason, I was the, you know, the, uh, known for my bullying or fighting or uh, being a rough character, and uh, I just broke. I broke down completely, uh, went back to the cabin, was convinced that the things that I had been doing, the Lord couldn't forgive, and uh, the Lord touched my heart through the people around me. I, I went to sleep in tears in this cabin with uh, six or seven other fellows. And of course, they probably thought I was just a little bit weird. Uh, but um, I awoke the next morning a new person. My heart was light. I was forgiven. And it was it was clear that God had done something in my heart. I didn't try to change. I didn't try to be a different person. I was a different person. And uh, it's, it was a clear, it was a clear sign that the Holy Spirit had touched me. And what I didn't even understand at the time, I had the feeling that I should do something for God or for the church and something. I went to the pastor uh, of First Church, and I said, I want to do something, but I don't want to go to college, I don't want to go to seminary, I don't want to be a preacher. Uh, I had a, quite a few. High school was not my favorite place, and, and uh, 
academics is not my strongest point. And uh, yeah, they sent me off to Rehoboth for a year, uh, 1970. So by the time I was 19, I was, I was away. Now, the reason I relate this is, is because God touched my heart at that time. I was 18, and God touched my heart. And it, it hasn't changed to this day. And that has clearly testimony that it's not of me. Because I am weak, I am sinful, I do fall, I'm reminded of my own sins every day and my own weaknesses. And so uh, now that I'm 72 years old and not 18 anymore, we can say glory be to God for what he has done. Because it's clearly that God, when God touches somebody's life, uh, there's a small element where God touched my heart and I said, where do I go from here? So I was willing to go further. I'm, I'm not one to spend hours in prayer and fasting and weeks and days and months uh, seeking God's will. It was like, okay, we'll do this. And that's the type of person I am. Julie, on the other hand, was uh, led to the Lord as she grew up, Sunday school, in the church. And uh, one of her Christian school teachers uh, so influenced her that she felt the call to missions, even as a, as a young adult or as an as a adolescent. And uh, Julie and I met about two months or even one month after my conversion. We had our first date at the uh, junior-senior banquet and uh, fell in love. Uh, I asked her to marry me maybe a year later, I'm not quite sure, year after that I was probably in New Mexico, but somewhere along the line I said, I said, uh, would you marry me? But I can't guarantee any livelihood or I don't, I don't have an income, I, I want to go into missions. And she said, well, she did too. So we, uh, we set off our married life with no income and no real direction where to go. And uh, it went from there. I went to Reform Bible College for a year. Uh, Julie worked at Blodgett Hospital as a nurse and uh, supported me. And then we went off to uh, Belgium in the summer for a two-month outreach. And uh, we were at the end of this two-month outreach, and the, one of the OM leaders was passionately speaking about perseverance and with the concept that if you think you've done something giving two months of your life it's nothing you need to give your whole life and all kinds of other uh, messages and for some reason again I believe the Holy Spirit touched lives touched our hearts as we walked out of this auditorium with uh, several hundred young people Julie and I looked at each other and we said we should stay not go back to America, and we had on our hearts to go to India. We said, we should go to India, and it was, I've always taken as the Lord's leading, when Julie agrees with me, it must be the Lord's leading. <laughs> and and uh, you married men probably recognize this. It's, uh, and so, uh, again, very spontaneously, we said to OM leaders, and in those days there weren't all these forms to fill out, and uh, psychological analysis, and do you have support? 
OM in those days did not believe in asking for financial support. We were only allowed to pray. It was forbidden to write a letter and ask for funds. We were only to pray. And so we were accepted on that basis as well. We just, okay, let's pray, let's go. And, uh, but I, I give this as a testimony of our, our calling. Now, when we got back to Linden, well, we were out for two and a half years before we were back. I visited a lady who had started supporting us a little bit, an older lady in Linden. And we were chatting and having a cup of coffee together. And she said, she said to me, it's too bad that you're not a real missionary like, and she mentioned other people who were pastors or teachers. Uh, uh, I think even a missionary pilot wasn't a missionary in her definition. And I realized over the years that that was my feelings as well. It was like, well, I did say to the pastor, I don't want to go to seminary. I don't want to be a preacher. Uh, but underlying that is often this feeling like there's, there's missionaries and then there's real missionaries. But at home, there's the pastor and those who aren't able to teach. And so you get different levels, different categories, first and second and third and fourth class Christians, depending on how the Lord has led you. And this is, this is what I had to learn very, very clearly uh, in my earliest years, in those first two and a half years in OM. Uh, God completely, completely broke me. I was a super disciple. I wanted to accomplish everything you could imagine for the Lord, soaring for the Lord, and I started to have depression. I lost my health and eventually nearly lost my faith in those early years. It was like, Lord, is this real? Are, are we just telling ourselves a story? Or, or is this something that's, well, are Christians just brainwashed? And day after day after day, I prayed, Lord, forgive me. Reveal yourself to me again today. And again, the Lord would be faithful. And again, the next morning, I would have the same thing. And I was going through, like I say, I had uh, physical, I had, I had stomach problems. I had diarrhea every single day for months on end. And uh, we were in India, so you think, well, the ship, we were on board a ship and we were around India, so you think, well, that's, uh, that's just the food. And it could possibly be that. But one day, the Lord put it on my heart that it might be psychosomatic. And so I confessed and asked the Lord to forgive me for worry, anxiety, uh, trying to be the super disciple, trying to be something in my own strength to be a missionary. And the Lord healed me that day, one day. So I realized there are so many things. I, I actually had that experience already in Bible school, I think the year, the first year of Bible school, it might have been the second. I had it as well, that I had headaches for two, two months. And the doctor said, if this continues, that it's, you're, you might have it for the rest of your life. And I realized this is stress. 
it's not of the Lord. And by confessing my sins, confessing my weakness for the Lord, asking for mercy, the headaches disappeared. And uh, these, things, these things make me want to say to you, you are valued. Whether you're the pastor or whether you have any, any sort of vocation here in, in Linden, in the county, uh, whatever your calling is, because we all have a calling. We all have to be sensitive, of course, to what, what the Lord is asking of us. But, uh, but we clearly each have a calling, and it's not all who are called to go overseas. That's very, very clear to me. And I, I appreciate very, very much the support that uh, I've had from the chapel here, the chapel folks, uh, the love, the concern, the... Uh, the finances and the prayers coming our way over all of these years so that we could uh, actually journey together with the Lord. And uh, yeah, our, our journey has been fairly long. We're over 50 years in ministry now. And uh, I have to uh, make sure I stay on, on track. But that, that was just the introduction. So, to end that theme, it's, it's to God be the glory, not to Al, not to Julie. Our perseverance is a testimony. It's clear of 50 years. That's a clear testimony. But it's not a testimony of our willpower. It's a testimony of God's grace. And we have to say very clearly, to God be the glory, because otherwise we we would have given up. I'm sure of it. We would have given up. And uh, yeah, just to switch a little bit, when I first came to Linden, we've been here for three weeks, a little bit over three weeks now, and uh, we were in South Carolina for two weeks. Um, you hear all of the news, and I was reading all kinds of uh, Christian blogs interpreting the, the news, and then I listened to People here in Linden, some people hate Biden and some people hate Trump and you've got shootings and you've got all kinds of stuff happening and the general trend of society is extremely depressing. And uh, I was getting depressed by reading the news and thinking, what, you know, I didn't know what to do until I, one day I was talking to to one of the, uh, a sister in the Lord, and she, she said, but, but we have to see this as a God's providence. And it went click, because I linked it to my cancer. Two and a half years ago, the doctor said to us very bluntly, if you do nothing, you have a year to live. And if you do this in between chemotherapy, which I'm now doing, you have, you have 18 months to live. And it's just a huge shock. You know, if I had done extreme chemotherapy, I might have, I had a chance, 65% chance of surviving the chemo and perhaps living longer. But uh, no guarantees. At that time, I wasn't so shocked. I don't think Julie was so shocked, but our children were shocked. Our prayer supporters were shocked. People were going, wow, did you hear what happened? Did you hear Al Meyer has got uh, leukemia? 
and uh, yeah, we just didn't have a future. It was at that time I, I made a recording for my children and grandchildren. We have six children, 21 grandchildren, and I wanted them to know that my leukemia was in God's hands. And I was listening to um, messages from uh, Renewing Your Mind, but also I looked up one from, uh, from Piper. Piper has one called uh, Don't Waste Your Cancer. But the, the message that came through was, my cancer isn't in this, the hands of chance, and it's not in the hands of the devil, and it's not in my hands how clever I am to figure out how to get around this. It's in God's hands. And so the cancer is from God. Because in God's providence, it's from him. When, when Joseph was in Egypt and his brothers were frightened of him, he said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He didn't say God turned it out for good. He said God meant it for good. God knew what would happen to Joseph before it ever happened. And so if we interpret the society around us and the direction the world and society is going, we have to be thankful that, that we and the world are in God's hands. Because I, I heard, a, I heard a, a guy preach a sermon here about a year ago in our church, and he preached about, is this all in God's hands? And then as he was leaving, he said, in the lives of believers. So he had preached a brilliant sermon about the providence of God, sovereignty of God, and he stepped off the pulpit to say, in the lives of believers. But this is not the world we live in. The world is in God's hands. It's not in the devil's hands. It's not in chance. It's not just random. But our Lord knows. And uh, we don't. We don't understand it, of course. It's, it's, it's completely puzzling. I've changed. I don't listen to the news every morning. I don't read these blogs every morning. Uh, I, I put on Christian music or a Christian message or the, the what do you call it, the Bible read to me, uh, this kind of thing, because, because my heart needed to be, needed to be lifted up. So we live, we live in these times. About the cancer... So I didn't die in a year or a year and a half. It's now two and a half years. I'm uh, past the overdue date. And uh, it's a miracle. Is it a miracle of medicine plus my personal therapies and all the clever things we're doing and all the supplements I take? Uh, or is it just direct miracle from God? It doesn't matter. I don't know. But it's a miracle that I stand here. Because normally I should be you know, a skeleton laying in a bed or, or passed away. And uh, it has given me a sense of urgency. So I had a calling, very clear calling, 50 years ago. Well, more than 50 years, because it was 69. But when I have this cancer, and I'm, and I'm coming home to Linden this time, I have got some family who don't follow the Lord, don't go to church. We've got school friends who have rejected the church and rejected the Lord, sometimes for good reasons, because Christians are not all perfect, if you haven't noticed. It drives some people away 
cynical people, people who don't know the Lord, but, but I have friends who are driven away. And uh, I have such a sense of urgency, Lord, use me. And how, I don't know, because I'm, I'm, I'm almost tongue-tied with these people who I've known for years. And I know their attitudes and, and how they rant. And I don't know how to break in. And so, uh, again, I was in the trap. I have to do something. Instead of, Lord, do something. Because I can't convince anyone. But I have a real sense of a second calling. Just because I have more years. And... Uh, yeah, in Belgium, I carried on with my normal job. My normal job in Belgium with Operation Mobilization is uh, director of operations of this huge building and yeah, the facility. So it's a conference, conference hospitality facility for missionaries in training and uh, all, kinds of, all kinds of new stuff that goes on. Uh, that facility, but the development of it, the maintenance of it, the uh, taking care of the guests, and uh, and uh, managing the people who do these kind of things. So, I should be a director. As it turns out, I haven't many people to direct. That's that's a very very serious problem. That Zav Center, which is the the conference facility, has one full-time guy, but he's also my personal assistant, so he does all of my administration for all of my other jobs as well, but he's doing the administration for the Zav Center. He's also a professional cook, so, he, so when we have groups, he's also in the kitchen doing the catering, doing the ordering, doing all of these kind of things. And uh, in the maintenance, we, we just don't have people who feel called to serve God in missions doing technical things. And uh, I don't know why. I don't know why this is. We've been crying out to the Lord for years to pray. I've asked you to pray. Uh, pray that people will come. I am in, even if I don't, didn't have cancer, I'm 72 years old. There, there, there will come a day when somebody has to step in and uh, so I do, I do do maintenance, and I do do technical things as well. I don't have as much time as I used to have because every fifth week, I spend a week every morning going to the hospital for uh, chemotherapy, and it knocks me out a little bit. It doesn't make me terribly sick. Sometimes, it, sometimes I spend the week uh, lounging around, not doing anything. But uh, often I can just buy... By afternoon, by after lunch, I can go uh, back, to, back to work, whatever that is. Um, when I got cancer, I resigned as elder from the little evangelical church in Zaventem. Uh, it seemed obvious that I should stop. Uh, but the church had lost its pastor. One of its elders had suddenly said to his wife, I end the marriage. He ended being elder. He ended being the worship leader in the church all at once. I mean, huge shock, huge shock to the church. And then two of the other elders 
uh, came to the end of their time, and there was no leadership. So we have been since before COVID, not an elders team, no one to make decisions, no one to give direction. We, we do have a, a team that, that keeps everything functioning. They, they arrange the speakers, they arrange everything. So, so we go on very well, but not clear leadership. And uh, just recently, uh, the denomination that we're part of, 22 independent evangelical churches in, in Flanders, uh, appointed, well, we asked for help, and three elders have been appointed temporary from three different, three different locations. And so they come in and work with the leadership team and try to find a way forward and to form elders within a period of one year. So we're in that process now. Uh, it's been a month, I think, since it started. And um, I was asked again whether I would be an elder, and I, and I said, no, it's, it's, I don't have the energy for evenings and visitation in the evenings, that kind of stuff, and, uh, and meetings. And so I felt I would, I would hinder the progress. Uh, right or wrong, I don't know. What I, what I do feel, conviction to do, because people... People look to me as an elder because I was elder there for 25 years. Uh, is that I should take on some of the pastoral care, visitation house uh, to people. Uh, that hasn't been happening for three years. Somebody's sick. Who who visits? Who decides who visits? All of those kind of things. Um, but not just sick. But but uh, when when there's trouble in families or or people just want. To talk to somebody, we don't have that. Now, I say, I feel the conviction to do this, and it certainly would be welcomed, but by nature, I'm not a person that reaches out and says, hey, can I, can I come and see you? By nature, I wait, wait for people to come to me. And so, if you see me in a crowd, you'll often see me on the borders, not in the middle. And so weighing up the conviction that I have and the nature that I have, we can pray. And I tell you this so that you can pray that God will lead. Uh, because I certainly can't meet everybody's needs. But I do have this heart. And I know that when God puts something on my heart, I should respond. And not just, well, maybe not, and reason it away. There's many reasons perhaps that I shouldn't do this. But it's my conviction that I should, I should do that. So that's our life as missionaries is 24-7. Pastors have this problem too. You, you don't know what is downtime because our home is open to anybody who wants to come. If the phone rings, I respond. By nature, I respond. Whether it's the middle of the night or it doesn't, it doesn't matter. So when it comes to church and the work with OM, and our personal ministries and personal involvement with people, there's no stop. And uh, I, I had a major burnout in 1997 already, when I was still in my 40s, uh, just because I took on three jobs. I worked day and night, literally. I drank liters of coffee 
And uh, I could fall asleep every night, but I was awake at 3 or 4 in the morning, and away I would go again, you see. And it took two years for my health to, to break. But I was successful. I completely broke my health. <laughs> it took two years. And it was one of those moments, again, where you're just working in your own zeal, your own flesh, your own strength, and uh, not doing it to the honor of the Lord, but doing it actually to your own, patting yourself on the back, the, the feeling of euphoria, of, of accomplishing stuff, is fantastic. But it wasn't of the Lord, obviously. And uh, so... There's many times I've been called and then had to be called back and then recalled uh, that the Lord has done this. But you can, you, if you would, pray for us that as we work in OM, church, family life, community, all of these things, even in my business relationships, that we could be open witnesses for Christ. That's our personal side. Now, Belgium... Belgium is a country that, in the Reformation, there were many, many, many churches, Protestant churches in Belgium. But in the Counter-Reformation, it was completely stamped out. So the Spanish Inquisition, the Counter-Reformation, the Huguenots fleeing everywhere uh, around Europe, and it, it made uh, Belgium devoid of Protestant churches, completely at the time of the Reformation. When we started, not us, but a group of us, started a church in Zaventem, it was the first time there was an evangelical church in Zaventem since the Reformation. And so I'm trying to give you a picture of what's the, the, the spiritual climate in Belgium. There's no Christian radio, there's no Christian television, there's no Christian billboards, there's no Christian bumper stickers, there's no, you know, in the schools, our children are often one or two in the class are Christians. The rest are Muslims or uh, no religion or Catholic. And uh, the Catholic children, they go to, they don't go to a church, but their parents have said that they're Catholic. They don't, they don't go to the Catholic church either. And so, in Belgium, one and a half percent of the population call themselves Christian, and that's every brand of Christian. If the biggest churches in Belgium are Africans who have come into Belgium, so you get churches that are two, three, four hundred uh, large uh, of African churches. We've also got Turkish churches. We've got we've got churches from ethnic groups from all over the world. If you take those out and you say just pure Flemish Belgians, it's a half percent of the population is Christian. And yeah, it means that our, our, our children grow up in this atmosphere, this society where there's no Christian influence. Um, and that's, that's, that's the, the, the climate, the situation in Belgium. OM has shifted in the sense that we want to uh, focus completely on uh, starting new churches, supporting churches, and so forth. Uh, we've, my, my, my part hasn't been that. My part has always been supporting this. But uh, we have a church plant going in, in Leuven. It's with, with the Chinese. There's another one in Wallonia. 
uh, with French-speaking Belgians. Um, there's one just going to be starting in Brussels amongst Turkish believers. Um, the, there is an Bulgarian Turkish believers church, but the the culture between the the Turkish Turks and the Armenian Turks, or the and the Bulgarian Turks, is so different that they want to start a church with Turkish Turks. <laughs> because there's so, so many differences. I don't know if you know, in Turkey, uh, amongst the Ar Armenians, was, was it Ataturk? I don't know my history well enough, but a couple of hundred years ago, they wiped out a million of them. The Muslims killed all the Christians. And so the feelings even between the Armenian Turks and the Turkish Turks, is still there. And even that, that their culture, even their diets, even their everything is, is so different. So we're starting in one of, these, one of these days, they're working on a location and so forth. Uh, in Brussels, they'll be starting uh, a Turkish one. We had a, we had a church plant for, I think it went on for three years before... COVID time in the town just next to us in Zav from Zaventem in Steno, Brazil, and um, very much, well, it's not like Zaventem. In Zaventem, we have this very sad story where our church, just one elder after another, was dropped away and we had no leadership. And the church went from 80 people on a Sunday to we're 30 now. It's about 30. Uh, recently, a number of families left, didn't like the direction. So as a group, we, de we decided we'll have this, the denominational help. And right after that was voted on and it was taken care of, uh, three families with children, so vital people, people who were active in the church, they said, we don't agree with the direction, and they went and... Uh, they went to another church in Leuven, uh, nearby, that's 20 kilometers away. Uh, so we've had all of this. Well, this church in Stainorkersale, there was a young couple there. They had been witnessing in the community for a number of years, and they moved to a new location, which was a, a former farmstead that had been converted for a house and housing and a, and a warehouse. And we had a team come and live there. So... Uh, a couple with two children and three singles in one place and, and a couple and a single in the other building at the back. And they started this Christian community where they would uh, start a church, disciple people to disciple other people with a very, very clear concept. We don't want to become a big group. We want to be, we want to disciple people to disciple people and not just be a cozy group. It was never the goal. And the wife of the leader, and she was one of the leaders, divorced him just at the beginning of the COVID time. Just left him. Left him and the children. And met an online boyfriend in America, and she's married again. Well, of course, that church doesn't exist. That, that one's completely gone. There's, there's nothing left. 
Okay, individuals from there have gone hither and yon, they've gone other places. But I say this to say the spiritual battle is so real. And we need to continue to pray that the Lord, the Lord will break through in Belgium because it's so hard. It's so hard. And uh, not to say that in Whatcom County or in Washington or in the United States, it's not also hard. I realize it's also hard, extremely hard here. And in other parts of the world, in, in, in Myanmar, where it is yet more difficult and other struggles, but, you know, I... My heart goes out to Myanmar. I, I, I know people, that, we know people there, you know people there, but also in India, also in Africa. Uh, I've been in these many places, and uh, uh, Julie and I lived in Nepal for a year and a half. Uh, we can see the struggles and the needs around the whole world. And that's when I, when I say Belgium is so desperately, desperately needy, I don't mean to say someplace else it isn't. It's not, it's not my point. Uh, but to pray that the Lord would do something. Now, I heard a statistic. It's a money statistic. But I was at a missions conference in, in South, South Carolina at a Presbyterian church there just a month ago. And the pastor, who is one of the leaders of Mission to the World, that's the mission arm of the Presbyterian Church of America, the PCA churches. Uh, he said that 95% of all giving, Christian giving, goes, stays in America. So you have the whole world and you have the United States. And 95% of the giving stays, stays at home in good ministries. I'm not, I'm not saying it's not good ministries, of course. It's fantastic ministries here and need support. But let's pray that your children would be called to go and not stay. And there's a sacrifice to go. It's not a sacrifice for your children. I assure you, young people, it's the best life possible. It's a privilege. I can do what I love to do because your parents send us and pray for us. It's, Julie and I did not sacrifice. Our parents sacrificed. The ones staying home, they're the ones that sacrifice. But we, we did not. We're not the heroes. The heroes are the ones who uh, release, miss their children. Uh, it's very difficult. I can't possibly overemphasize the importance of praying. Uh, Julie and I were in a prayer meeting while we were in Bible school. I was in Bible school, and that's what led us out. OM started because an elderly lady across from a public high school prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed for that public high school, and a Gospel of John went into the hands of George Verwer. Uh, one of the leaders of the school, and he became a Christian, and he started Operation Mobilization. And we can, we, can, we can tell you endless, endless answers to prayer that God moved, and God moves through prayer. Primarily through prayer. Also the preaching of the Word. The, one of the texts that I was 
that I had in mind this, this morning when I thought about uh, speaking here was 1 Corinthians 5, uh, verses 17 to, or 18 to 21. It's hard to just read a little bit. But that, that Paul says that God is reconciling through Christ people to himself through us. It's what's astonishing. We are ambassadors. And Paul was talking about himself, and I don't think we can say, oh, that's only for Paul, it's not for us. It's an amazing, astounding, scary thing to think that God has chosen to reconcile the world to himself through Christ, through his word, through us. We have this privilege and we have this responsibility to continue to preach. Uh, or to witness, or to be a witness. You know, when, when Christ said that we were to be witnesses to the whole world, he said, you will be witnesses. He didn't say, you should be witnesses. Uh, you need to try to be witnesses. He said, you will be witnesses. Sometimes we are bad witnesses, sometimes we're good witnesses, but we are a witness. And uh, I, I, I firmly believe in the midst of our, our weaknesses and our, and our sins, that God still can work to reconcile the world to himself and in times, in, in, in spite of us. Um, how long have I been? Oh dear. Um, if anybody has questions, I, I, I also must say that in Belgium, it's just about impossible right now for a non-European to get a visa to be a missionary. So uh, we're praying, when we pray for missionaries to come to Belgium, they actually have to be, at this moment, they have to be Europeans. And that's pretty much true throughout all of Europe, that uh, missionary visas have been blocked. And uh, Julie and I became Belgians uh, quite a number of years ago, so there's no risk for us because we're almost more Belgian than American now. And, um, but to, to also pray that, that this would happen, that we, could, that we would see new life come to Belgium. Uh, and uh, what Americans can do is come for three months. And we have lots of opportunities for volunteer teams uh, for practical things, but also for, for ministry, many kinds of ministry. And, uh, a three-month exposure for a young American is a very good thing. We, Julie and I went for two months, and it ended up 52 years. So, would you close and lead us? And uh, thank you. Well, thank you, Al. That's great to get an update on uh, what's going on with your ministry. Uh, and are there other requests or needs or thanksgiving to share uh, with the group this evening?